Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Hey, church. Good morning. So I'm just going to let you know, I like a rambunctious crowd. Are you guys rambunctious? You promise? (laughs) Don't tell me that's the significant other. Moderately. Keep it down, husband. (laughs) Story of my life. That's great. Uh, Today, we are cracking open our Bibles, and we're going to get into Galatians. But it's super easy, Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 1. It's the very beginning. And we're going to talk about a guy named Paul. Some of you guys heard about Paul, right? Yeah? Oh, geez, you're not rambunctious. Have you heard about Paul? There you are. Um, Okay, so... Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Here we go. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I was proclaim- that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it for- from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was even born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia. And afterwards, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did not go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Everyone say Cephas. Cephas is Peter. If you guys have ever seen Passion of the Christ, we hear Peter or Jesus yell out like eight times, Kephas. He's talking to Peter. It's his Hebrew name. Then, after three years, I did not go up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and stayed with him for 50... I did go, sorry, to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and I stayed with him for 15, year, for 15 days. But I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brothers. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then... I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because me. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you have met me before. Uh, Some of you I have not met. So again, my name is Adam Jones. Hello. Good morning. Um, you probably have interacted with my better half over here, Jenny Jones. You have the pleasure of uh, being gifted with her gifts far more often than you have the pleasure of putting up with mine. Uh, together we live in Highland Park, and uh, most of the time when she's not singing here, she's off making amazing, ridiculously beautiful music. Um, and the rest of the time, I am kind of this roving pastor. And I... Uh, preaches at a number of different churches, and I'm actually kind of a consultant with the Presbytery. I help at a lot of churches in the L.A. area, some of whom are struggling with this crazy world that we're all dealing with. 
right now, these days. Basically, I study history and change and help churches navigate the, the massive struggles um, and decline that a lot of churches these days are experiencing in our culture. Are we aware of this? Yes, a little bit? So that's what I, I help do. So I guess I'm kind of a, a pastoral consultant of sorts. I also helped out here recently, a few weeks ago, with the VBS program. So I'm also very experienced at making a fool of myself in front of your children. Uh, my personal spiritual life, I suppose, uh, started much like I'm, I'm sure many of yours did as a kid, knowing about or kind of who God was. Um, but then I started my own personal like relationship, with a little bit more in-depth relationship with God later in high school. I, don't, I never know how to word that. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, I never know like my spiritual life. My, my personal walk, relationship with Jesus. I started following Jesus when I invited Jesus into my heart. I think most of us know what we're talking about when I say things like that, right? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. But it's still a little weird, right? We're saying, like, like, for instance, the day I invited Jesus into my heart. When we sit down and actually think about those words working together, it's a little bit weird. And all of these types of phrases, I think, speak to two separate things or that are very uh, closely related. First off, there are sorts of uh, attempts to communicate the spiritual, which in and of itself is really hard, right? It's really difficult to talk about the spiritual because it uses weird ethereal type language. We often neglect or ignore or relegate spiritual talk to one hour on Sunday. You guys know what I'm talking about? We're in the middle of it right now. This is how we shame. Uh, this is a shame, really, because we are human beings, and being human means that we are in part spiritual. We're spiritual creatures, creatures created by a spiritual God. It's a part of life, and recognizing that is important. The second thing it speaks to is uh, how sometimes language and specific uh, vocabulary and phrases tends to uh, cultivate a sort of subculture. We grew up with this type of stuff in Christian circles. Subcultures always have a special vocabulary and a special sets of phrases that don't really make sense if you're outside that subculture. I was born, uh, I, I, sorry, I call the language Christians tend to use Christianese. Things like saved, being born again, uh, the Eucharist, that's a weird old Latin word, discipleship, fellowship, ministry, sin. Struggling. That's one of my favorites. You know what? I've just been really struggling lately with this thing in my life. It's very Christianese. Examples of, you guys know examples of this all the time. Um, what do you call soda? Oh, we got one. Pop. So soda, what was that? So we call either soda, pop, or sometimes Coke. You want a Coke? Yeah, great. Okay, what kind? You guys know what I'm talking about. How about this? Small, medium, or large? or tall, grande, and venti. What specific subculture and I'm talking about? We got a, we got a like full-on woot. Dang. That's great. Tell me, do you know who Arsenio Hall is? She doesn't. You guys do. That's another subculture thing. This is great. Yours is wonderful. Uh, uh, I, a lot of, I work in a lot of film sets, and the crew sometimes will ask for an extension cord, but they don't say, hey, can you pass me that extension cord? They say, hey, can you pass me that stinger? Why do they call it that? I don't know. I don't have any answers for you. Um, ships. 
They don't call it the front or the back. I don't even know these. Bow and stern, starboard and port. Subculture languages. Um, com programmer talk. They don't even use words. They just use acronyms or like small amounts of letters. JPL, I don't even know. Musicians have an incredible sub-language. Some of that is just with auditory listening to tones. It's hilarious. Um, all of us in some part in our lives participate in these little subcultures, in these little languages. Uh, these, these little sub-languages are cues to other people to let others know that we are also in the know, that we are uh, belonging, or we, we kind of are invited into that little group of people. It lets, they're cues for, for one another to let others know that we're, we're on the same side, we're on the in. The trick, though, is recognizing that those of us that are outside those subcultures don't know what you're talking about, and it makes no sense to them. Yet we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, are supposed to introduce people on the outside to Jesus, a.k.a. the creator God of the universe, and talk about the spiritual parts of life, even though it's really hard to talk about the spiritual parts of life, because we acknowledge that spirituality is a natural part of human life. So, we should be good stewards of language and spiritual language, and we should be good hosts to our neighbors who are maybe on the outside and invite others into those weird, tricky parts of life that are difficult to talk about. That might mean that we need to edit our phrases for those of us who don't get it anyways, right? Those of us who are on the outside. And stay away from words like backsliding. Ooh, that's an old one. Um, the lost. Faith, sometimes. Or even heaven and hell. Really weighty, mysterious words that are tricky for others to hear that don't, don't know what they're in reference to. What we're actually talking about when we mention those things is how God is at work in our lives, which many of us who are fluent in Christianese would call a testimony. Right? We get a lot of help, actually, from our, Paul, from our reading this morning about Paul in Galatians. Now, in our text, I want to break it down, and I want to make sure we hit three specific things. So if you're taking notes or you're trying to catalog where we're going and tracking where we're going, I want to talk about three things. First off, Paul. Who is he? What's his deal? What's going on with him? Second, I want to talk about the different types of conversion, uh, which is to say, like, learning about God, what that's like. Um, and then thirdly, I want to talk about how meeting Jesus, a.k.a. the creator universe, the creator God of the universe, transforms you. First, Paul. Who was he? What's his deal? Paul was originally actually named Saul, who was from Tarsus. Everyone say Tarsus. A Greco-Roman city. It was located kind of at the, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, at the very center and southern part of modern-day Turkey. So if you Google it later, you'll, you'll find Tarsus. It's actually still around today, which is kind of fun, um, which doesn't really matter, except that you know that Paul, who was actually named Saul, was actually called Saul of Tarsus. Um, but the important thing here is that uh, Tarsus was a Greco-Roman city, so he was technically uh, legally a Roman citizen was a really big deal um, back then. It meant you had a whole, whole lot of freedoms that other people didn't have simply because of your relationship with the state. Which is to say, side note, yes, the Bible has quite a lot to say to us about immigration justice and how we treat the foreigner. But Saul, he was a Roman citizen. He was also a Pharisee. You guys know who the Pharisees are, right? Rambunctious crowd. <laughs> 
You guys know who the Pharisees are, right? Which meant that he was an expert in the Tanakh. Everyone say Tanakh. Yeah, you kind of got to clear your throat at the end of that. Tanakh. Tanakh is the Hebrew scriptures. And that is essentially what uh, the Jews had for a Bible. It's, It's what we call the Old Testament. So he was an expert in it. And many of the Pharisees had memorized the Old Testament. How many of you guys can imagine memorizing the Old Testament? Goodness. Whew. Now, historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group called Israel or, or the Jews. And they were set apart from among the other peoples by practicing things that you've probably heard about, like circumcision of all males, keeping kosher, which is like food laws, and then observing the Sabbath. Now, for us today, those things tend to seem like distant or irrelevant in some sort of distant biblical time past and the ages far, far away that don't really have any relevance for us. But the mentality is very much alive today, here and now. Essentially, the Jews, uh, although the law wasn't originally intended for this, found themselves in a place where they had to act right to be included. Kind of like what I was talking about earlier earlier in regards to, to language, being included in. We all know this kind of stuff. What are some good Christian behaviors? Being kind. Yeah? Being honest. Respecting your elders. No cussing. No promiscuity. Then we might get into some really weird and dangerous ones. Some really subculture ones like no dancing. You guys remember dirty dancing? It's footloose. You can't wear that skirt. Women shouldn't preach. Christians should only be Republican. You know, weird things like that. All of these things speak to little subcultures. And we can find ourselves in. And also the pressure that we all feel in order to act right so that we can belong. You guys know what I'm talking about? This mentality is alive and well today. And this is what Paul is dealing with. Paul was really, really good at acting right. In fact, he was considered a zealot, which is to say he was a hyper-vigilant, uncompromising fanatic. Many of the Jews at that time hated the early Christian movement and were incredibly passionate about persecuting, so much so that they they found and they, they beat up and they sometimes even killed Christians. And Paul was leading the charge on that. But then Jesus reveals himself to Paul on the road, blinding him and calling him out for his transgressions. This is what we are called. This is what we are all reading about in Galatians 1, specifically verse 15. But he spells it out more directly in Acts 22, which I'm actually going to read here one thing. And it's actually going to lead us to our second part, which is talking about the two different types of conversion. So let me, let me read this a little bit. This is Paul specifically talking about what happened on the road to Damascus. While I was on the way approaching Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me and fell, and I fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? Then he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I asked, what am I to do, Lord? The Lord said to me, get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything about what has been assigned for you to do. Since I came not to see, since, sorry, since I could not see of, because of the brightness that, of the light, those who were with me took me by hand and led me to Damascus. 
So here we have a guy who is quickly rising up the ranks of those he is hanging with, right? He is acting right, and he's acting so right that he is recognized for it, and he is 100% qualifies as one of those who belongs. He's a standard. He's who the the younger Jews want to be like. By all known standards, Paul was doing everything right. He had all the right answers. He knew everything he was supposed to know, and he, he thought he had great standing before God. Then Jesus meets him face to face. He gets smacked upside the head. He gets literally blinded. And here's a little note. Isn't it funny that Jesus blinds the guy who thinks he knows how to see? Takes the sight from someone who thinks he has all the answers and stands righteous before God. Doesn't this let us know that maybe we cannot see like we think we can sometimes? Doesn't this let us know that maybe we do not know as much as we think we know? Here we have Jesus showing himself to Paul and he completely changes his ways. Paul not only stops persecuting Christians, but he actually becomes a devout believer in Christ and starts proclaiming and protecting Christians and proclaiming the grace of Christ. This would be like saying Ricky Gervais, Sam Harris, and and Bill Maher, all of whom are really aggressive towards Christianity, meeting Jesus, doing a completely 180 turn, and start proclaiming the Christ, the, the Jesus that they didn't believe in two seconds ago. We call this a Pauline conversion. Everyone say Pauline conversion. This is a quick turnaround from one direction to the other. It is by far the sexiest of all testimonies. We love this story. We love it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You guys have heard that lyric before. I was headed for addiction, prison, or probably even death, but then I meet Jesus, and now I'm on the path to life. We see this narrative play out time and time again in all the TV and movies we watch. We love this story. We watch it constantly. We watch a central character, right, going about their business, and then something dramatic happens, and they see the error of their ways, and they make a huge change, and then they beat the bad guy, or they solve the problem, or they get the girl, and the life is happier than it ever was before. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You know the plot line of every movie we see? However, although the Pauline conversion is by far what we think the sexiest of all conversions is, the way God shows up in our lives, this example is also the rarest. It happens, yes, 100%, but it is by far the rarest. In fact, what most of us experience is what the disciples actually experienced. You know, the 12 guys who followed Jesus around for like three years and had no idea what he was doing, who had no idea what he was talking about. Listen to this, Luke 18, 34, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Mark 9. But they did not understand that what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Again, John 13. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this. Time and time again, Jesus is teaching or showing his disciples how to do life, and they had no idea, no clue about what was going on. They were troping around the countryside, having a campfire almost every night with plenty of opportunity to ask him what was going on, to ask for clarification, and they still didn't get it. In fact, they didn't get it until he rose from the dead. They didn't get it when he was alive. They didn't get it when he died. But you can be sure they got it when 
He was alive and well again, eating a fish lunch in their living room like we read in Luke 24. You got to come to terms with a guy who you saw die alive again, standing in front of you, taking your finger and putting it in the holes of his persecuted hands. Jesus changes you when you meet him. Things change for you. Yet don't most of us share the same story of the, of the 12 disciples rather than Paul? We, we might say something like, I knew about God, which is what I, this is how I came up, but I didn't really know who he was. And then I found myself at a specific time in my life, you might say this to yourself, where something weird happened, or I was at the end of my rope and I felt his presence, or I felt the Holy Spirit show up, or I was alone in the wilderness, or maybe I was just alone in life, and I knew something greater was out there, and I, I knew that I was loved. You see, the difference between the 12 disciples and Paul wasn't what, it wasn't in the end result, but was, it was in the speed that it happened. Paul was real quick. The rest of us, most of us anyways, you might be Paul, which is really cool, but most of us tend to take a really long time in figuring out who this guy is and what he's doing and changing in our lives. The thing to catch here, though, is whether you had a crazy fast, 180-degree turn like Paul, or whether, like the rest of us, you're, you're slowly learning over time like the disciples, the end result is the same. Meeting Jesus, a.k.a. the creator God of the universe, changes you, transforms you. Which is to say, church, that when you meet Jesus, things change. Paul was a devout Jew. He knew the Bible from back to front. He was dotting all his I's and crossing all his T's. He was doing everything right. And most importantly, he deeply believed that he was on a good standard with God because of his actions in the world. Likewise, the disciples thought Jesus was going to be this militant, messianic king like David, coming to free them from the yoke of living under Roman rule. They also thought that if they acted right in relationship to Jesus, that they would be included, right? That they would be on the winning team, and thus their good actions would put them right before God. Church, let's all be open and honest here. We also propagate a cultural practices that state that if we act right, we are good Christians, if we say the right things, if we do the right things, if we come to church, if we give money to the right causes, that we'll be good people, and therefore we will be in good standing relationship with God. We love the little rule that we find in our own Gospels that tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we often take it too far, just like Paul and just like the disciples, thinking that we can earn our place in heaven or earn our place in the belonging, or earn our place in the in-crowd, or earn our place in righteousness. However, Paul in Galatians continually reminds us of this hard truth. We want to earn our love. We want to earn it because it feels good to deserve it. It feels good to love others and to love God, and because we love others and because we love God, we think that others and God love us. Because we're good, or we're nice, or we're devoted. The hard truth is that although we like to love, it is incredibly difficult for us to be loved, especially when we don't deserve it. 
We do not deserve the love, favor, grace, and mercy that God shows us through Jesus. We do not deserve the relationship God has with us. We certainly do not deserve the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. the creator God of the universe, living and working inside us. Grace, the gift that God continually gives, which is to say a gift we do not deserve, is really hard for us to accept especially when we live in America, land of the rich and free, right? Especially when we live in in Southern California or even L.A., land of glitz and glamour and movie magic, especially when we live in ridiculously beautiful San Marino. Church, we Westerners like to think that we have all of our ducks in a row. Amen? We like to think that we're sitting comfortable We deserve to sit comfortable because we earned our comfortable seat. We like to think that we deserve our salaries or we deserve our nice homes or our wonderful lawns. And frankly, many of us have worked hard for such things, but you can see how the same idea kind of seeps into our relationship of how we think about, know, and relate to God. You can see how, like Paul and disciples, we would rather earn our position by acting right rather than being rudely confronted with a God who isn't impressed with our best actions, our best efforts, our best behavior. Who knows just how incredibly broken we are, who looks at our deeply selfish inner monologues and still loves us despite it. Church, Paul's story is our story. We are so often, trying so hard. But here is the really good news that Jesus brings us. He tells us, I love you. And he knows about that petty talk that we share with one another about the lady down the street. He knows about that shady bit about the money that we were involved in last fall. He knows about that affair that happened A while back, he knows about the absolutely ruthless talk that we treat ourselves every single day without mercy. He knows about the bitterness that we hold on to in our hearts about our wife or about our husband or about our parent or our friend or our coworker or our neighbor. He knows, and he says, I love you, despite all of that garbage, and he knows we don't deserve it. He knows we couldn't, and he loves us anyways. Church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for looking us straight in the face, with tears in your own eyes for how broken and sick we are. And thank you so much, because we don't deserve it, that you love us anyways. Lord, I ask that you continue your ongoing process of revealing yourself to us and teaching us who you are. A God who loves us despite all of our brokenness. Who who meets us, whether it be on a road to Damascus or a road to Pasadena or L.A., on all of the various roads in our life, thank you for showing up and introducing yourself and then starting the good work of changing us 
into your sons and daughters, into who we were originally intended to be in the first place. Thank you for not giving up on us, God. Thank you for loving us. We love you back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.